Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of Mind Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the Mind Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Adi Jaffe is a renowned UCLA-trained addiction expert who battled his own drug addiction for almost eight years before turning his life around and heading back to school for his PhD. He's been a speaker at our annual Revitalize event, and his new book, The Abstinence Myth, A New Approach for Overcoming Addiction Without Shame, Judgment, or Rules, is a must-read for anyone who's dealing with addiction within their family or with loved ones, and his rules for recovery are thought-provoking. Adi, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So we have to rewind a while with your with your story and addiction and walk us through that. Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of funny how long I have to rewind now whenever I think about this. it's It ended 15 years ago. What I would term my like serious addiction phase ended 15 years ago, but it's still so much of my work that, uh, that it defines a lot. But and how old were you 15 years ago? Uh, I was 26. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm 40. I'm about to turn 42 at the end of this month. And uh, so we're pretty, we're pretty close in age. And, you know, I was, I mean, I think if I really start and understand where it started for me, it was, I was like, I was a little bit of a punk growing up all the way from 13, you know, 12 and 13 years old. And what I mean by that is I would just constantly do things I wasn't supposed to do. Uh, even living back in Israel, which is where I was all the way to the end of junior high, I um, I carried a pocket knife that I would throw at trees all around and kind of always had this edge about me, you know. I, I got in stupid fights. It was just, it was really now looking back, I know it, I didn't know it at the time, but it was this discomfort that made me feel like I had to prove myself all the time. And proving myself meant doing more, being harder, pushing the edge. Um, and where that ended me, you know, was um, we, we ended up moving to the States. My fa- my whole family moved. We moved to uh, a suburb of Chicago, Skokie, Illinois. Um, and I felt even more out of sorts. Like I was already pretty socially anxious. People didn't tell How me. How many that. people just moved from Israel to Skokie, Illinois? No, no. And my accent was weird. And plus, you know, moving at the beginning of high school sucks. Yep. Because already, even if I stayed in the same place, high school is that place where a lot of junior highs come together, so you meet new people, and that's weird because you've been with these other people for years. But now I'm in a different country. I don't speak the language. I know nobody. You know, my parents had friends, Israeli friends, and so I knew kind of like their two kids, but they were different classes. I mean, it was a mess. And what happened was we went away to the sleepaway camp. I'm socially anxious, We uh, and people brought out alcohol, and I and I started drinking, and it just clicked for me. Like the moment I got a little bit, bit of a buzz, even though the vodka burnt on the way down, and even though I felt weird having to do it because I, I thought drinking was bad, I didn't care what girls thought about me all of a sudden. I, I felt okay about that. I I felt like I could be funny without worrying about what people thought of my jokes, and, and that felt really comfortable for me. And so it started this path that I went on for a while, which was fixing the way I feel uh, by outside sources and not really doing a lot of internal work on it. 
that, by the way, made me more of a punk as I kept growing up because no matter what my parents thought about me, no matter what the teachers thought about me, I had a way of addressing it. So starting out as a really good kid when I was growing up, here I am having these conversations with my parents where they're calling me a loser and telling me I'm never going to amount to nothing. I'm quitting school or, or you know, ditching essentially every day. By the time I got to college, I was essentially a daily smoker and drinker, uh, went through a clinical depression episode after a breakup and tried harder drugs during that. And if I fast forward through kind of like all the little pieces, I find myself in LA. I moved myself to go to UCLA and I'm drinking regularly, but more importantly, I'm doing ecstasy at least every weekend, but probably more than that. And then I get introduced to meth. And I got introduced to meth because I started selling drugs and people asked me for it. But the way I used it the first time was for finals, you know, for everybody who does it. for finals. Yeah, you know, it's like, um, I feel like in today's world, or at least given most of the group of people that I now help, they get introduced to Adderall or Ritalin or something like that. Meth is not that different from Adderall. Adderall is like, I was reading something that like every, all the kids use Adderall. Every, I, mean, loop. It's I mean, kids use it like crazy CEOs. You know, there are companies where you get Adderall at, when you're like a C-level or like a, a top-ranking executive. It's just like they will hook you up with Adderall just to be able to stay up and do the things you need to do until midnight because that's not normal. And by the way, amphetamine salts that are in Adderall are not all that different from meth. Meth is like Adderall on steroids, maybe at best. Not all that different. But my friend gave it to me because it was a finals period and I was really behind. I stayed up for three straight days and I'm not embellishing. This is literally like more than 72 hours that I stayed up. And one by one, one final by by another, I just read all the stuff for it and then went and took the final and read all the stuff. 72 straight hours of staying up. And, uh, and what happened after that, as a guy who learned to use outside tools to help him, now I started using meth for every finals period. And because it worked for finals, then I went, well, why not midterms? And I started using it for midterms. And then I started using it for every big project. And next thing you know, as a college student, I became a daily user. Wow. And I've met other students since who are, do this with Adderall, do this with Ritalin, do it with meth. You get hooked on it. And next thing you know, you're using daily and then, you know, selling more and more of it. And so when I finished college, I somehow magically graduated from UCLA, uh, literally by the skin of my teeth <laughs> and what happened then was i just went into drug dealing full time and i was using meth all day i had like a four to five hundred dollar a day meth habit i was using ecstasy all the time hallucinogens i just went into this dark nebulous hole literally like a black hole of existence where i lived in a recording studio that i managed i had an apartment but i never really went there uh, and i used drugs and sold drugs and partied all the time for about three years um and then I got in an accident, a motorcycle accident. And in that accident, the cops found a lot of cocaine on me. I'm not really, it was a quarter pound or half a pound, but a lot of cocaine. Wow. Yeah, it was in the lining of my jacket and they found it during my accident. I had broken my leg. Uh, and that started this kind of, this, I mean, I was already at a downward spiral, but it started this huge quick decline. Within three months, they busted my door down on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. SWAT team style. And... Um, and I was really faced with this very bizarre reality, which was I didn't really know how to do anything. I, I hadn't held a regular job in God knows how long. I knew how to sell drugs and do that well. I knew how to get really fucked up on drugs. But I needed to make some decision. And what was nice, if I can say it this way, was for the first time ever, the other people in my life, my family, who I'd completely distanced myself with because I was 
loaded with shame and discomfort about the kind of world that I ended up in. Uh, I wouldn't have called it shame back then, but I really distanced myself from them. Now they were back in my life and they knew everything that had happened. So I kind of marked, this was in the, uh, late 2001, right before, my, like 10 days before my birthday in 2001, that marked the beginning of this different stage of my life. Um, and it took another year and a half for the pivot to really happen for me. Um, I still used, I still relapsed. I went to one rehab and got kicked out, went to another rehab and, uh, and got my shit together there. But then I had to go to jail and I did a year in jail. You did um, a year in prison. Well, so jail is where you go if it's under a year, prison for over a year. I got exactly a year. My judge was nice to me. Uh, thank you for that, Judge Fox. Um, so I did a year. I did four months actually in. And then I did eight months in what's called like a work release program where you kind of you go to jail at night and then during the day you get to go to work and do stuff. Some people clean. I worked for my uh, my lawyer. So I helped drive him around and I did work around but the for office. Four, for four months you lived in jail. You, you were yeah, in jail. Yeah. That's intense. It was. It was. Um, you know, jail, a lot of people ask me like, what was that like? And I mean, it was hell is, is really the first way to say it. Um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. And jail has this weird way of being both completely dehumanizing, uh, boring, and terrifying all at once. And it's hard to think of a place that can do all of that, right? Because everybody can imagine being bored. Uh, being dehumanized is pretty difficult for people to understand, and there are some specific examples I can give as to why that happened. And then terrifying, maybe some people have ended up in a terrifying situation, but terrifying, boring, and uh, dehumanizing at the same time doesn't happen. But they do it in stages. The first thing that happens in jail is all the stuff you see, all the cavity search and all the getting naked and showering, all the stuff that they show you in the movies. When you see it in a film, not that big a deal. It just kind of you look at it, you go, oh, that, that sucks. To have to actually do that, like if anybody can pause, you want to do a mindfulness moment right now, if anybody can pause for a second and think of what it would take, feel like to just take your clothes off wherever you are right now, hold them in your hand, and then walk en masse into a big shower and just shower with everybody and then bend over for somebody to check your but um, immediately makes you feel like less of a human being. Immediately you become an animal. And, and then nothing happens for hours and hours. Like you sit in these cells waiting to get assigned and it really just drains the, the life out of you. Um, and so when I left, I knew one thing and that was I, I will do whatever I have to do to never end up back in that place. Um, but it wasn't easy. It was a, it was a tough long climb to be able to secure that for myself and so what when you get out how do you start that process and and well i you know when i came out i didn't even understand the real how different my reality would be coming out than it was before all this started um i couldn't get hired to save my life because of that little box that everybody has have you ever been convicted of a felony and you know i mean i'll say it outright like I'm a white upper middle class kid. I never had to deal with the stigmatization and the judgment that happens from living on that other side of the world. And here I am, I couldn't get a job at the mall. I couldn't get hired at a restaurant. Like I couldn't, for six, seven months, I tried to find work and I couldn't. And fortunately for me, and the reason I'm, I'm making such a big deal about it is my parents were there. And so I had a place to live, right? Like somebody was helping me pay rent because I couldn't support myself. And if I if I was in the same situation as millions of other people, the only way I knew how to make money was drugs. But I didn't have to go back to that, thank God, so that my, you know, because my parents were helping me. And I went back to school by necessity. 
um, I could not get hired. I almost got a job at the Apple store. They went, they took me uh, through a second interview. They told me I was hired. They just said, we're going to do the background check. And I had already told them, you have to tell them. So I told them that I'd been convicted. I gave them the whole list. And then I heard nothing back. They just never got back to me. Um, and it was really demoralizing. Um, I left into this world that was literally not willing to let me back in. So I went to school, Cal State Long Beach in um in Long Beach in Southern California, did not ask if you've ever been convicted of a felony on their application. I got in and I was just looking to normalize again, which was really tough after the life that I'd lived for three to four to five years. And I was a drug dealer, as you imagine, kind of like riding around in a Lincoln Navigator with a, a gun in my waist and you know a lot of money in my pocket. And moving from that to sitting in a class being given homework was a real kind of mind fuck, really, honestly, for a couple of years. Um, but I made that commitment to myself. I was not going to end up back in jail. And so I just, you know, at the time, what I tell a lot of people I work with, I just did the next thing. I didn't worry. I never imagined I would be sitting in a place like this talking about this stuff. I just did the next thing that would make sure that I wouldn't end up back there. And so you get through, you get through Long Beach and talk about the journey to, you know, helping people and what yeah. that was like and, and getting through and, get, and getting, you know, getting to a place personally where like, okay, I can do this about the other side and, and transitioning to like, okay, this is what my life is going to look like. And then a the decision, I want to help people who've been through this. So the first time I knew that I wanted to work on addiction at all was uh, still at Cal State Long Beach. My advisor, Dennis Fisher, who, uh, you know, when you get assigned as a grad student with a faculty to work with you. And I worked with him. And he did work on HIV and hepatitis C. And it just so happens that a lot of the people we would work with and we did research with were drug users, like homeless drug users. So I'm sitting around doing interviews, asking people about their drug use, et cetera. And I've, I got really excited by it. Like I was really driven by finding out the information that we were finding out and then going and doing research and analyzing and writing about it. So I became like, he says to this day, like one of his hardest working grad students ever. And in the middle of all that, it dawned on me, oh, wait, I can do this. Like, I can make a career out of figuring out how I even ended up in this place. And I made it my mission to figure out what happened to me, right? How did I go from an upper middle class kid with a dad who's a doctor and a mom who's a human resource manager in a bank to a drug dealer living like, you know, a wannabe Eminem on the streets of L.A.? And... So I worked, I mean, I just focused like I had never focused before. I used to hate school and I was, I was all about it. I would read after school. I was super focused on it. Uh, I was still sober. I was sober for three years at the time. And, um, and I started learning the neuroscience, the social psychology, the abnormal psychology, the motivation, the assessment, the tools, what kind of treatments work and what don't work, et cetera. And as I was doing that, my, first of all, my own idea about my own addiction changed with time, but then I started you know, when I first realized I wanted to go back to school, I wanted to apply to UCLA and very nicely, but their graduate advisor essentially said, don't bother applying because <laughs> I didn't have the grades. I didn't have anything like that. But after Cal State Long Beach and doing really well, I, had a, I was a 4.0 student there. I decided to set my sights back on UCLA and I got in. Um, it was the only other grad school I got into, but it was also the only one I visited. It was kind of like I now, uh, you know, I'm married to Sophie now, so I understand a little bit more about kind of like manifesting and really setting your goals on something and going after it. And that was for sure what I did with UCLA, which is one of the top ranked universities in psychology graduate school. Um, and when I got into UCLA, 
it was like this come to Jesus moment. Like, okay, I, I'm now in this place where I almost felt a responsibility to go, I, I got to go figure out what happened, right? And so neuroscience, statistics, um, clinical research, I did everything that I could touch, always focused on addiction. I learned about the motivation, uh, kind of the neuroscience of motivation, employing it on what happens to people in addiction. Uh, learning and memory classes became to me about triggers and why do people have cravings for drugs. Everything became about addiction, really understanding it. I started a website called All About Addiction and started writing about what it is that I was learning. And I got really, really excited about it. You know, and for somebody like me, getting really, really excited about something means I go all in. And so I, was, it, I made it my life. And as I was saying, my own ideas about addiction were changing as I was doing this. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I don't think I'm the same person that I've been hearing about in the rooms. My recovery happened initially through AA, very traditional rehab with all my relapses and everything. Um, and when I was starting to study this stuff, I started being kind of like metacognition, right? This idea of being able to think about your own thinking. And I was doing research with rats and with animals. I was involved in animal research for, uh, for a little bit there. And I was working with meth, which was actually a really bizarre experience for an ex-meth dealer and addict, right? Like I would go to the lab and I would pull out the little jar of meth and I would mix the meth mixture for that day. And I remember having to really talk myself through it because... Wow, temptation right in front of you. Because some people will say of your addiction, like, don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be compromised. People, places, and things, right? And so I remember having a talk with myself the day before I had to go do this for the first time. I mean, there's like 200 grams of pure pharmaceutical meth in this thing. And I remember having to have the talk with myself. Nobody around me at the time knew that I used to be a meth addict. They wouldn't have let me do that work. But again, this is where the judgment, that's why I fight judgment so badly, right? Like, I knew I could get through it. And all that had to happen was I had to get my where, my whereabouts and kind of get my, um, my mind right about this idea of I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this work. And within a couple of days, it became norm and I didn't have to worry about it anymore. But that started something in me of thinking, you know, like, what if addiction is not what everybody talks about? And I went through a pretty long discussion with my parents, actually my sponsor in AA at the time and my girlfriend. And, um, and I decided that I was going to experiment with my own version of recovery. And, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit before. For me, that meant leaving the fold and discovering some things for myself. So I did a drinking experiment on myself and, uh, it worked out okay. Like I, I remember I talk about this a lot with the people I work with now. I remember the day I had my first sip of alcohol after three years of being sober and it was a big decision. It wasn't, I didn't take it lightly. I had prepped for six months talking about whether I was going to do it or not. My girlfriend at the time uh, was in Hermosa, California, and we were sitting by the beach. She was having champagne, and I literally reached over, and I grabbed the champagne, and I had one sip. Uh, we're at her house on the patio. We're, like, we're seeing the beach in front of us. It was a beautiful day, but I took one sip, and I sat back because what I was told was being where I was from, taking that one sip of alcohol was going to take me right back to where my addiction was. And so I very deliberately, in this kind of research-based scientific mind, started creating these little mini experiments in my own life to see if the story was right. And the good news is we're now 12, 13 years after that occasion in 2003, 2004, so 14 years. And, um, and my experiment worked out totally fine. But what I, once I studied addiction, I realized, okay, now not only do I know a lot about it, but I also know a lot about what's missing in the way that we're addressing it right now. And I started taking it almost as my own responsibility 
to help people so that they don't have to go through the same struggles that I went through. So when I got out of grad school and my postdoc, I started a treatment center that we ran for about four to five years. And now I started Ignited Recovery around the idea of offering people an alternative approach to getting help for any kind of addiction. Like my addiction was meth. Uh, in an earlier time, you can say I was a really bad drinker, but and then I found out later that I had a sex addiction, essentially, or yeah. an intimacy disorder or whatever. So if you wrote an yeah. article for you guys about that. Well, talk but, about that, too, and like talk about sex addiction and what that, sure. what the world gets wrong, what it is like, and then come back to this idea of what what is addiction and yeah. what have you learned. Well, so here's the interesting thing, right? And it's funny. What we're calling sex addiction, and a lot of people that I've met either in rooms of recovery around sex addiction or now in this couples group that Ma, Sophie, and I go to regularly that we love. I think that what we're calling sex addiction is a deeply ingrained intimacy disorder that probably exists for way more men than we want to admit because the socialization of men around sex is so distorted. And it's fuck, it's probably worse right now with like Pornhub and all these ways. You know, when I was a kid, you had to steal like a porn magazine or a Playboy sure. or find your dad's porn stash. You don't have to do any of that now. It's all available all the time online. But it created a really, when I think of the way I thought about sex back then, and it's still something I have to challenge myself on a lot, it created such a distorted version of what intimacy was supposed to be like. And so in some ways, I think that that intimacy issue was actually part of the thing that drove my drug use. I think they're all really connected. I didn't know how to connect to girls. And drinking, if you remember from that story of how I started drinking, helped me not care sure. what girls thought. Social lubricant. Social yeah. lubricant. So because I'm anxious and don't know how to connect with people because that was never really well taught to me, especially women, I had to help, give myself help. And then I started over-depending on that help. And the drugs help with the same thing. Like, meth is great for sex. It's not just good for studying. Like, not only are you staying up forever, but you can have sex for longer and all this stuff. And so ecstasy, same thing, right? Increase intimacy. So what, I, what a lot of people term sex addiction, I now look at it just an intimacy disorder. And I had to really reteach myself how to connect, how to have a relationship with my wife. What's, so what is an intimacy disorder? Just like like not being able to like emotionally connect with someone? Like, yeah. I guess the, explain what. Sure. At the core of it, an intimacy disorder is, yes, is an inability or difficulty truly connecting intimately with another human being, right? And um, it can take a million forms, but one of the ways that we do this is through physical touch yep. and, and sex. Uh, but another one is through psychological connection and empathy, sympathy, all these other forms of connection, right? Um, there's so much research about what happens if you're, robbed of intimacy and actual physical connection early in life oxytocin release and all the things that happen between mother child bonding and really creating the framework the baseline for what that child's long-term ability to connect but then also parenting right so there's attachment parenting versus not then uh, there's authoritative parenting which is kind of the boundary consistent strong parenting that is also loving versus authoritarian parenting which is harsh kind of like that tiger tiger sure. tiger um, mom um, kind of thing yeah. so there's a lot of research in terms of what sets somebody up for success but i think in this way whether through socialization or hormones and biology men and women are also different um i was literally i learned about relationships through porn and not only is porn male-centric it's also essentially fantasy and transactional 
Yeah, you right. know, I mean, especially by now it's transactional. Right. Early, like the porn that I used to watch when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, actually it was like you watch, you would watch these long vignettes and stories. It was still pretty transactional. Yeah, but nowadays it's like people go online and just watch money shots. You know, it's like it's about the end, not about the, the relationship. And so, you know, I hate saying it now because I recognize the, the power of it, but I did not understand what a real relationship with a partner would be like. And um, I went through a lot of partners. And when I was dealing drugs, I had sex with a lot of people. But it was very transactional. It was very much about like, hey, you want it? Yes, let's do it. And we were done. I couldn't hold long-term relationships. Like other than two people in my life, and, and Sophie not included, but before Sophie, I had two relationships that lasted longer than a year. Everything else was like two, three, sure. four months at a time. And I don't think that's a crazy story for a lot of people. And so, you know, what I learned about myself was that all these things are connected, right? Um, I felt out of sorts for a long part of my life, and I looked for ways to fix that. People do it through food, they do it through sex, they do it through drugs, they do it through weed, they do it through alcohol. Sure. It's just when you feel out of sorts, you try to fix that. Now, that led me to an entirely different, and uh, I wrote a book about it now called The Abstinence Myth. Which everyone has to pick up. Yeah, which we'll, we'll talk about, <laughs> I'm sure, a little bit more, but... That led me gradually to this place where I said, you know what, we're focusing on the wrong thing in addiction. We tell people that if they quit, things will get better. But if you quit and you're not equipped to deal with life, things are gonna get way worse. Like we have to deal with the underlying issues. I had to get more comfortable about who I am. The reason I, sure. when I talked at Revitalize, my main thing, and I wear this bracelet that says fuck shame, like I need to always be aware of how am I changing myself, how am I, criticizing myself how am i feeling less than and then i have to do that inner work to kind of recalibrate myself and that's the thing that keeps me out of drug addiction it's not about abstinence well, right well it, to me it's this idea of being self-aware and really being comfortable with yourself because if you're not it can take various forms that at the highest level can manifest itself in addiction whether it's drugs alcohol relationships sex food wellness like it's this idea of you money like yeah. looking outside of yourself right and at the extreme level that becomes addiction it's fo focusing outward instead of inward that's that's how i sort of think about it so if sure. you don't you, you could just stop doing it which can be effective but well, it can be effective in my opinion if if you also handle that underlying stuff. Because I've, right. I've met people who are abstinent but still hate themselves. Right. That's not a good fucking living. Go get a drink. Like, there are people out there who have held on, like, they're just, it's called white knuckling, right? Like, they're just holding on to their abstinence. Like, that's the end all be all. You need to deal with some stuff. And you said something that is really deep, as simple as it sounds, and that is getting comfortable with who you are. I work with people do as part of my Ignited Recovery course, we do a weekly chat, live video chat every um, every week. First of all, dozens of people on there, everybody has their cameras off. One of the amazing things that I love about being able to do online work with people, standing in front of somebody else and admitting your weaknesses is really tough for people, it's really shaming. So being able to do it on a camera with the, your camera off and just be able to talk or type makes it easier for people. That's a good thing, that's not a bad thing. But getting comfortable with who these people are, I would say is, the toughest thing for them to do because we hide from this stuff all the time we don't live in a society 
that makes it easy to be comfortable with who you are. We live in a society that makes it easy to pretend like you're comfortable with who you are by presenting yourself a certain way. Sure, especially on Instagram. On Instagram, <laughs> on Facebook. Yeah. Look, like, I've met couples, I've worked with couples, but I've definitely met couples where you, you know, you're having dinner with them one day and they seem like everything is perfect. And you're, you know, you're hanging out, you're grabbing drinks, you're going to a show. Three weeks later, they're divorced or they're separating. Where have we left behind the ability to be transparent and just actually share what's going on with us versus having to put this mask on like everything is perfect? I believe, and again, that's why this fuck shame thing for me is so big. It's like if we can get comfortable with who we really are as a society, we're going to find out that it's not even that everybody else is as fucked up as we are, but rather that we're all the same. We're all struggling with the same stuff. We all find the same things difficult sometimes. And that the reduction in the need to put up this front and to wear this ongoing mask, in my opinion, itself can be an incredibly healing journey for people. Um, and that's what I try to do with my students now. I actually try to work with them on creating a life that they are proud of, which sometimes takes huge changes. I was going to say, if someone may be listening, they're like, okay, like I'm buying what he's selling here. Like I need to get more comfortable with myself. And I think everyone feels that to, to some degree. Uh, what do you do? Like what are the steps? Like I, I know it's hard to simplify, but it's, it's like uh, what, what are the couple things I know you talk about in the book, but like summarize. Yeah, Don't so give away the whole book, but, totally, like, what, but what do you need to do? So there are three principles that I, that I uh, talk about. And the first one is honest exploration. The second one is radical but, but Honest exploration does not mean just like traveling around the world for... Um, honest ex- <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about each, what each one is. Honest exploration, radical acceptance, and individualized transformation are the, th- the three big umbrella concepts. Honest exploration for me is about doing the inner work to become honest about the experiences that have led you to this point in your life. So what I mean by that is what was your childhood like what did it feel like inside what did it present like outside what were the experiences that you remember the seminal experiences in your life that you remember being bullied being overweight in in school uh, getting injured whatever it is just literally like creating a laundry list we have exercises for this in the book and in my online courses but first is just like creating this laundry list of what what brought you to this moment and the way I talk to people is if you want to get somewhere in your life you got to know where you're starting from so let's figure out where you're starting from then the next piece is to make peace with it, the, the radical acceptance part. So many people run from those experiences that the first portion that I just talked about, actually exploring what happened to you and what got you here from your biology to your environment to your psychology and trauma and all that is really uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable because of all the judgments we receive about it, right? So being sexually abused as a child, uh, having your parents, you know, a parent leave the house and feeling abandoned, all those, you know, being bullied for being overweight in school, all those things leave marks. And what we have to do, and the thing that I talk to my students about a lot is, I've come from a place where I believe that we all do our absolute best at all times. So if what got you through all those experiences is drinking two bottles of wine a night, and that's what allowed you to get to this moment, that's okay. It's actually kind of perfect. It's it's what allowed you to get here because once I really understand and connect to your experience, that honest exploration part, everything that you were able to unravel, I understand for almost every client that I work with exactly why they did what they did. And I say, you know what? 
you did what you had to, to get here. Sure. And you're here. And, and the journey starts now, and that's exactly. okay. So that's the, the next piece is you, you calm down. Then we do an actual assessment. We say, okay, now where do you want to go? So we figured out where you are. Now where do you want to go? And I don't think people can even set goals of where they want to go until they accept where they are right now. Because when people set goals for themselves, like Instagram, Facebook goals, they're setting the goals everybody else wants for them. And that's when people trap themselves. That's when they marry the wrong person or they marry the right person, but they never have the right conversations with them to figure out what the relationship should really look like. They take the wrong job. They move to the wrong place. Why? Because they're making those decisions from that shameful place. Once you accept all those experiences, you can now set real goals. So you've got your starting point and now you can start setting real goals, which by the way, can change over time. Well, what's a real goal? I think people struggle with this, you know, in wellness too, people are passionate, they're mission driven, and then, but they're also like, you know, they have a mortgage or totally. they've got kids, their school, their costs. Like how do you balance the goals Love in it. this world of being a type A and the realities of, of living yeah. and traveling and kids and all that stuff versus the rest? So that's where I think it's important to kind of to set these goals in, in specific areas of your life. And it can become really overwhelming to try to decide what your entire life you want. Like, So we actually do a perfect day exercise with our students, which is literally trying to imagine like what would a really good day look like for you but let's start even smaller for the people that come to see me around addiction let's say let's say they're drinking every day and they're drinking a bottle and a half to two bottles of wine if i would have asked them at the beginning what do you want to do i want to i want to quit then they do all this work and maybe some of them still decide they want to quit but others say you know what i just want to drink like half as well. i just want to drink like two or three glasses of wine a night and i go okay cool that's your goal for now great they end up resetting something that now actually feels like it truly speaks to them. So when you set goals around, let's say, food, for some people it might be about weight, for some people it might be about how they look, for other people it might be about eating all vegan or you know all plant-based or, uh, or vegetarian meals, whatever, you know, whatever diet they do. I really stress for people to create like smart goals, right? So ones that are specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, they're realistic, and they're time-bound. So like over the next three months, I'd like to cut out half the amount of meat that I eat. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, setting a goal that is actually realistic for you to attain over a specific time period. Because people do this thing like, I want to be thinner. Or I want to be healthier. I want to make more money. What is that? You well, know? I, I, think, I think what happens, and it happens in wellness and just the world in general uh, people set a goal, they accomplish it, and then they're there. And then they're like, well, I'm not happy. I thought this thing would make me happy. I'm mm. not happy. It's like the case of like the executive like having like eight wives, you know, keeps right. on going, sets the goal, more money. It's like, I'm not happy. What's going on? It must yeah. be the wife. Or what? I know I'm generalizing no, here, totally. simplifying, but like this idea of the balance of the journey and setting a goal and the tension. So the, the goal of the journey, I love it. So um, when it comes around to addiction, a lot of people have one goal in mind when they come to me. But I think what happens, what I, what I actually teach people is the true goal is to end up with a life that you're satisfied in. That's yeah. actually the true goal. Now, you know, we talked about this when we were speaking earlier. Your goals will change, and that's okay. What happens that's more important, in my opinion, is to do continuous reassessments of where you want to go and not not set those goals from based on other people's expectations, but rather on what actually feels true to you. The problem, let's say in addiction, is most of the time when somebody struggles, there are a couple of things. The reason the book is called The Abstinence Myth is everybody says, well, if you commit to quitting, we'll help you. 
but quitting is the hardest thing. If I have a hard time dealing with my life and taking opiate pills or, or benzos to sleep is the thing that's making me able to somehow function because at night when I go to sleep, I think of all the shit that I hate about my life and I just need a couple of sleeping pills to be able to go to sleep. Somebody tell me I need to stop those first. And by the way, quitting benzos cold turkey is actually dangerous for you. What that sounds like to me is, wait, I have a crutch that I'm leaning on and you're telling me that in order to do physical therapy for me, you need me to get rid of the crutch. Can we just strengthen my legs a little bit first so I can stand on my own? And so in most places, abstinence is put first. Like first you have to quit and then we'll help you. But it goes like this. If you are willing to quit, come on in and we'll give you some tools. I think people are not even ready for the tools right off the bat because they're not even clear on what's wrong. Um, You know, I work with this woman who's a super, you talked about type A, super successful, incredibly powerful woman in industry, multi-million dollar company. She started by herself from scratch in the South, which is man's land anyway, difficult, even more in Texas. And when we started working, she was like, hey, look, I just want to drink less. My life's totally good, actually. I'm not depressed. I don't have anxiety. I don't know why I drink too much. And she's done everything she could up to now. And I said, okay, let me just start with saying, that's probably not true. There's probably stuff you're hiding behind, and that's why you're drinking more. But I don't need you to know what that is now. Let's start on the journey. We've worked together for two and a half, three months. And just the other day, she was finally able to say to me, she hates where she's ended up in life. Hates it. Now, this is a person that three months ago was saying, I'm actually totally good. Everything is perfect. I'm just drinking too much. She hates the marriage she ended up with. She hates what happened in her family early on when she grew up, and she's kind of replicating the patterns her mom did. All the stuff that you would think might happen to somebody that where they would drink two bottles of wine every night is happening in her life. But it took three months of her building enough comfort, reducing her shame, and doing some work with me around early life experiences and what's led her up to this point to even understand her starting point. It took three months of working with me to get to the starting point. And what I said to her when she started saying all this to me, I said, I'm so happy you're seeing this now because that's the honest exploration part. And if you don't understand that this thing is here, nobody will be able to fix your drinking. There is no way to fix it because when you get home every day, the first thought in your head is, fuck my life, I hate myself. And so you have to quiet that voice and you learn that alcohol does it, so you're going to keep doing it. What is beautiful, you know, when people ask me, because a lot of times when I talk to people about, about my methods, they go, Wait, do you tell alcoholic then that it's okay to keep drinking? Or do you tell drug addicts it's okay, it's okay to keep using drugs? And I say, no. What I do is I work with people to create a life for them that no longer is compatible with their addiction. I want people to live a life where they don't need the drugs and the alcohol anymore to make themselves feel good because they feel good in their everyday life. And for some of my clients, that means they need to get healthier and lose weight because they hate the way they look so much that they need to smoke weed or drink to forget about it. And... It's different for every person, but at the core of it, what I find for almost everybody I work with is shame. Deep, deep deep-rooted shame about literally like who they are as humans. Um, When we were talking earlier, I didn't even realize that you came from the financial industry, but we live in a, especially in the US, we live in a society where you can always find ways to make yourself feel shitty. There's always somebody who makes more money, looks better, drives a nicer car, has a better house, has a hotter wife or not better looking kids or like his yacht is bigger you know you do this with wellness with people i do it around these self-destructive behaviors that people engage in that chase can make us feel so bad about ourselves that we will self-destruct in the seeking of feeling okay and so i try to really turn that equation around on people because it worked for me right we just talked about my story that guy at 25 years old 
had all the things I wanted to get based on my original discomforts. I had a lot of money. I was making like 300K a year or something like that. I had all You weren't the, paying taxes on that. I was not paying taxes. That was tax-free income, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. Seven years have passed, so that's uh, at least I think I'm okay on that. But like, I didn't file taxes for years. Um, and I had girls left and right. I was partying all the time. You know, I had the cars I wanted. I had everything I wanted, but it was all false. It was sure. all set on false pretenses. So I had to keep pushing the drugs in there to numb myself out. I have less money than I had back then. I've got one woman that I love um, and get to share this relationship and this life with. But I am so much, I'm not perfectly at peace with who I am. We all struggle with internal no, demons. Is. But I feel so much more at peace now that I'm not sober. I drink. I had a drink last night at a restaurant while I ate my meal. I do not, I swear when I say this, I do not worry about my addiction coming back at all because the life I live now doesn't have space for but it. But it's true there are some people that work just chemically. It's like, can't do it. And, yeah, that, and I wouldn't that's even, fair. Uh, yeah, so first of all, I just, there are some people like where the biological yeah, stack is yes. so stacked against them, but those are f- very few and far sure. between. What happens more commonly are, so I talk in the book about four, four different factors, biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. Different people have different risk factors on those. Look, if you grew up in a terribly traumatic household, uh, are surrounded by people who are constantly using and know nobody else who isn't, the biological stack in terms of genetics are, is stacked against you, and you feel disconnected from purpose and serving other sure. people, you are in a really bad place. But this is what I, and I, I will stand by this for almost everybody. If you get your mind into a better state, where you start being able to make peace with that trauma and understanding that you didn't fuck up and it's not about you being less than, but rather about the experiences you've been to. You clean up your environment to whatever extent you can so that you distance yourself and and get better prepared to deal with whatever's going on for you currently in your environment. You connect yourself to a higher purpose, whether that's God or spirituality or meditation or my, my purpose, my spirituality is helping other people now. That's it. That's I don't have I don't believe in God. What I'm what I'm saying is, I've seen people come from long lines of addiction and beat the crap out of their addiction if they get everything else under control. It's hard for one of these factors alone to drive your behavior. Sure. The problem is, again, I, I go back to this thing. For some people, the shame is so deep, it's so deeply ingrained that it is much safer to completely stay away from substances. Because if they touch them, the relief they get is so immediate and so big that they would rather just drown in it. Sure. But I also, I also want to point out it's okay where, you know, someone could be sober or what have you and, and goes to, does all the work, is spiritually sound, self-aware. And they're just like, you know what? I don't even want to like, and that's totally cool and oh, good I'm not, and make that point. Oh, yeah. by the way, I'm not at all pushing substance use no, in no, any I form. Know, I know, I know you're yeah, not. Yeah. But. Uh, 40 to 50% of the people who come to me decide they want to quit. Yeah. I think my point is once you become the person you want to become. Once you feel like you're on a path that you're proud of, substances no longer matter. And, totally and what I mean by yes. that is, at that point, some people say to me, I don't need the alcohol anymore, I'm good. Right. And other people say, I want to be able to have a drink at a wedding or whatever. Like, I just want to get people to the point where they're not relying on sex, food, substances, whatever, for their well-being. And then what I see is the addiction switch almost turns off. So I want to move on to 
wellness addiction, orthorexia. Mm, And is that, you know, some some will say, oh, it's better. But like, you know, if we talk about like root causes and what's going on, how how do you think about wellness addiction? Well, so talk about negative self-image, right? Talk about a group of people who feel so not at ease, so diseased about their biological state of being that what happens is they overexert trying to control it, right? They get to the point where they're so obsessed, so meticulous with their need to eat clean or whatever diet it is that they're focused on in the moment because the the thinking, the underlying thinking, the OCD-ish like thinking is that if I get this right, I will feel okay. Mm-hmm. Again, that is never true. There is no external anything that will make you feel okay. There's no external diet. There's no external guru. None of that will make you feel okay. It's an internal process. And ironically, the people I work with who, um, who struggle with food, whether it's sugar, fat, or control over their eating in whether an anorexic fashion, bulimic or orthorexia or something along those lines, it becomes about controlling their emotions. It becomes about, I am so uncomfortable with what's going on in my head right now that I'm going to refocus my efforts on something different. It's not that different from workaholics, sure. right? Like, And by the way, this is something I struggle with. I wonder if you do to some extent. I'm happier that when I really kind of get in my head, I go to work than meth, better for my state of being, but not that great for my relationship, right? And so... What, what I find in the people I work with is as they balance their internal state of being to experience a much deeper level of comfort with who they are, issues that they never thought could go away, go away. I'll give you an example from a client that I love. Um, he came to me for sex addiction, and sex addiction and, and, gam- and, uh, and drinking were his issue. He literally wrote me an email. He was uber skeptical about being able to do our online course, but his wife said, handle your shit or I'm leaving. <laughs> and so he had three options. Well, he had two options. The first option was going to an outpatient intensive treatment by him. It was like 15 grand for two weeks. A residential treatment in, um, I forget where it is, but uh, in the middle of the country somewhere that was going to be about 45 to 50 grand. And I think his wife found my podcast with Sophie, heard her story through an article and said, hey, these guys are doing something too. You got to do something. And so in a totally half-assed way, he wrote me an email saying, like, I'm really skeptical that this could work, or that it could work. He wrote me after he had done it. But instead of spending 15 grand and 45 grand first, I decided to do a $1,000 course. Two or three weeks into the course, we do these assessments with our people. And I do a, an assessment called the Wheel of Life. Uh, if you go to ignited.com and sign up, you can actually get a free one downloaded. The original Wheel of Life had eight slices in it. Work, romance, career, money, and you know, physical environment, all the things that, like to assess how you're doing in life, your quality of life. Sure. I redid it to add two slices, purpose and contribution. How well connected are you to your bigger purpose and then how are you contributing to society? This guy did this assessment and he writes me the next day and says, you know what? I did the wheel of life and I realized for the last 15 years of my life, he's 30 something. For the last 15 years of my life, since I left college, he was a, a basketball uh, player as well. He said, I've had no purpose. I got a job. I did the thing. I have no reason why I'm doing any of this. And that made him feel so lost and disconnected that he he just felt aimless in the world. And one of the ways he got it on was getting attention from women, uh, sure. going online. He needed something to feed him. 
Sometimes the answers are way simpler than we think they are. We think it's going to be something complex. This guy just needed to connect to something bigger. That bigger thing can be church or it could be, like I said, volunteering at a soup kitchen outside your home. But you've got to figure out what is missing from your life and then fill that in. And I've seen absurd transformations in people that, that thought it was a lost cause because they were able to understand exactly what needed to happen in their life and, and put those things in play. And I urge everybody who's listening right now and either is struggling or knows somebody else who's struggling, stop focusing on the obvious. That was my last question, but go ahead. I okay. love that. Continue. Just stop focusing on the obvious. Like, right, like your friend or your boyfriend or your wife who's drinking too much knows they're drinking too much. If you keep telling them they need to drink less, and I talk about this very explicitly in the book, you're not helping. What they, what they need right now is somebody to help them figure out what's wrong because they feel So what's sick. the question you should ask? Because that was my question. How do, how do you help someone who's struggling? Like, what do you say? Yeah, so first of all, one of the first things that I say is pay attention earlier, right? And this is back to that intimacy and connection. Like, we need to connect. And when you start seeing somebody close to you veering off, have that conversation. Don't chicken out. Have that conversation. Say, hey, you know... I notice when we're going out and hanging out, you're drinking a little bit more. What's going on? Let's talk. Don't let them get away. They're showing you they're uncomfortable. Have the conversation, not about the drinking, but about what's going on underneath it. So start earlier. That's the first thing. The second one, we tend so much to look at the end result, like where we're sitting right now. So if I see somebody who's drinking a bottle and a half of wine every night, I'm focusing on their drinking because that's what's happening. But if you track that back, you will recognize that there are real reasons why that person is doing it. And if you can help connect to somebody, don't become their policeman. Don't force them, right? That whole intervention model where you're like, if you don't do this, we'll disown you. That kind of world, it doesn't work. It doesn't do well. I'll, I'll put a caveat to that here in a moment. But connect. Go to that person and say, hey, you know, I see you're really, really struggling. I'm here for you if you need to talk. Um, I know, especially if you're close to this person and you know some of these things that have hurt them, Talk about those. Stop talking about their medicine as the thing they right. need to stop because that's really, really painful. Now, a caveat, right? We're dealing with this opioid crisis right now. People are dropping like flies around drugs. If you know somebody for whom their substance use is literally a life risk in this moment, like imminent risk of dying, there can be a lot of there can be interventions that can help save lives. And I want to talk about this specifically because whether it's naloxone, which is a a drug you can give somebody when they're overdosing, they're literally available in the nasal spray. So if somebody's overdosing, you can give them the shot of a nasal spray and they will come out of their overdose immediately. Or what's called medication-assisted treatment, where somebody who wants to quit pills can get on a medication that will help them manage their cravings for the pills or the heroin or whatever it is that they're using to be able to, to feel kind of leveled in their everyday life so they can start doing the work. I'm a huge supporter. And in the book, I talk about questions for the person struggling but if you read this as somebody who knows somebody who's struggling you'll connect substance use sex addiction food addictions all those things are ways to manage internal discomfort sure and if you get it at that level then i hope one of the things you'll start doing is stop believing the hype that addicts are bad unmotivated sick people who don't know right from wrong and will lie to do anything to get their next fix. What they are is they're hurting. And 
whether they're hurting because of their early life experience, what's going on around them right now, or their biology, if you can get in on that level and intervene to help them feel like somebody cares, almost immediately there will be a change. And if you can carry that on long-term and put in the right supports, I've seen miraculous recoveries happen where people thought it was impossible. I love that. So to close, what keeps you up at night and mm -hmm. what has you excited in the morning? Well, you know, like just like with my drug dealing, when I go in, I go all in. And so I've really made it my mission to help as many people as I can. I set a goal to help a million people beat their addiction with this. Uh, and Sophie and I do relationship help for couples around ignited relationships. And um, my goal there is to literally reduce the divorce rate in this country. Um, what keeps me up at night is how do I get more impact? Like how do sure. I connect with more people? You know, when we were talking earlier for Ignited, you now gave me like a new number to, to shoot for, right? Like, can I get 10 million people to connect to what we're doing every month so that we are changing lives? First of all, I don't want my story to only kind of ca have caused pain for my family. I want something good to come out of it. Um, but also we're losing like 120 to 150,000 people a year to drug use right now. Same. And it's insane, and we've got to stop it. So that's that's what keeps me up. And if you could go back in time and give uh, twenty something uh, addicted a D advice, what advice would that be? Oh man, um, be more honest. Be more honest. Be more transparent. Share with other people what you're actually going through. Love that. Okay, everyone, check out the Abstinent Myth, Adi's new must-buy book and check out everything Indeed does at Ignited and with his wife Sophie who we also love you guys may know as Philosophy Mama on Instagram yeah. but they're an amazing couple doing really powerful work so check out everything they do thanks so much Dee. thanks for having me Jason thanks guys yeah.